Yoshihide Suga is reinforcing the country's military might. Japan announced a record $52 billion defense budget in December, the ninth consecutive rise in military spending. This was on top of an arms deal with the Philippines, worth $103 million signed last summer, marking Japan's first entry into foreign arms sales after lifting its de facto ban on arms exports in 2014. Since then, Japan has actively expanded its military export industry, announcing a new deal with Vietnam, worth $345 million, making it Japan's 12th arms export partner, alongside other countries including the US, Great Britain, and Malaysia, with other deals currently under negotiation with Thailand and Indonesia. is seeking to strengthen cooperation with ASEAN to realize a free, open Indo-Pacific region. Notably, many of these partners are located in Southeast Asia, as Japan pursues its free and open Indo-Pacific concept. A policy goal for which Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide looks to the U.S. for cooperation in the administration of new President Joe Biden. Why is Japan pursuing new arms deals? And how legal are they in view of Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution? What do these deals indicate about how Japan views its military position in the Pacific region, the military alliance with the U.S., and its relationships with other countries around East Asia? And finally, how might new administrations in both Japan and the United States impact military policy for both countries? I'm Tristan Grinnell, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on Japanese military policy, I talked with Dr. Sheila A. Smith, Senior Fellow for Japan Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Dr. Smith is the author of Japan Rearmed, The Politics of Military Power, published by Harvard University Press in 2019, along with Intimate Rivals, Japanese Domestic Politics and a Rising China, published by Columbia University Press in 2016. I started by asking Dr. Smith to discuss whether or not Japan's recent arms deals violate the Article 9 No War Clause of the Japanese Constitution. Sure. I think it's important for your listeners to understand what Article 9 actually says and how it's been interpreted. Article 9, of course, was adopted under the U.S. occupation in the Constitution promulgated in 1947 and was really an effort to pacify the Japanese after the war. In the first paragraph, there's language there that says that the Japanese people forever renounce the use of force to settle international disputes. And that's a language that says nothing about acquisitions or capabilities. But it is a language that comes from international law and from a, an international agreement called the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. So it is a commitment to negotiations to diplomacy. But the second part of Article 9 is really about self-defense. And when the Japanese parliament looked at that text before it was promulgated, they really wanted to leave open the right of self-defense. And that was assured, obviously, under the United Nations at the time. So the Japanese government, since the early 1950s, I've always seen Article 9 as allowing for the right of self-defense and has, you know, evolved an interpretation of Article 9 that actually allows it to acquire quite sophisticated weaponry and now today, as you say, build partnerships with others, including the United States and others in the region. That's a great point about the historical nature of Article 9, but it does seem like these arms deals are a new thing. You know, is it fair to say then that Japan is trying to assert itself in the Pacific, you know, between China and the U.S. perhaps? No, I think that might not be the right way of understanding the evolution of defense technology development and then now uh, global sales. So there's two frames, I think, that are helpful. 
One is, of course, Japan's changing security environment. So I think, again, to use your shorthand, yes, there's considerable concern about the military balance in the Indo-Pacific. And Japan, especially in the maritime area, you mentioned the Philippines and Vietnam, Japan has been reaching out to Southeast Asian maritime nations to help them build their capacity to defend themselves. And that is in the realm of Coast Guard capabilities, as well as emerging very nascent naval capabilities. So that is recent, and that's a new thing, and it's important to put that in the regional context. The second is Japan's own thinking about its defense needs and how to develop technologies that will allow it to have the capacity in the years ahead to sustain its own defense capabilities. And of course, if you're in the world of arms sales and arms transfers, you know that economies of scale are very important. And Japan has had a number of companies with a very, very limited set of capabilities for helping the Japanese government develop its military capability. So part of the shift you're seeing is Japan's own recognition that it needs to build greater economies of scale. It needs to invest in new technologies to allow it to do the kinds of things that others in the region are now beginning to do. And it can only accomplish that through greater collaboration with other partners, the United States, obviously, first and foremost, but other partners as well across the region. So I think, you know, it's important to understand about five years or so ago, the Ministry of Defense stood up a new agency called the Acquisition Technology and Logistics Agency. And again, this agency was really tasked with a number of things, but one, of course, is to set the agenda for research and development for Japanese technology, and this would be military technology specifically. And it was also to develop the kinds of procedures and protocols that would allow Japan to coordinate and cooperate, not only with other countries, but also with its own private sector. So ATLA's formation is a new indication of this, what I was referring to earlier, is the desire to build economies of scale and to think about emerging technologies. Six areas at the moment are R&D priorities for Japan, and I think it's important that we understand that they are also built into Japan's defense policy, right? But they are cyber, underwater technologies, electronic warfare, hypersonics, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, which would help them 24-7 have the capability to understand what's happening, and of course, understanding of how to network operations between their three military branches. So this is a pretty sophisticated new set of technologies for Japan. And I think the R&D effort here is the recognition that they need to keep up with the abilities of not only China, but also just the technological improvements in operations, military operations these days. So it's no longer just about a fighter or a tank or a submarine, right? It's really about how to know what's happening in real time, how to think about what they call new domains, and that would be cyber and space, and pay attention to what's happening in all dimensions of Japanese defenses. It's a pretty sophisticated effort, and it'll take time to come to fruition. So it's not something that will produce big picture defense sales overnight, but it's important to keep defense sales within that concept of how Japan seeks to develop its long-term capabilities in the military sphere. And you mentioned some of these other partners, the Philippines, Vietnam, where we've seen these deals being signed. And with the U.S. obviously has been a very long military alliance. In fact, we just had the 60th anniversary of this military alliance. But there has been some points of tension in that alliance, you know, especially with the previous Trump administration. There was issues over military bases in Okinawa, cost sharing for base support, even disagreements over the Trans-Pacific Partnership. 
these new deals that Japan's reaching out to other countries, is this a way of perhaps Japan saying, well, we can be more autonomous, we don't have to rely on this U.S. military alliance as much? I think it's a little bit of an investment in all kinds of future contingencies. So some people like to call it hedging. I think that especially this defense technology piece from which the arms sales programs now have developed, they come out of a deeper concern about Japan's ability to compete, even in the alliance, even in a strong and sturdy alliance. So I think there is there is two aspects, right? One is looking at the United States as the sole supplier. Is that wise for Japan? And of course, the Trump administration really put an awful lot of pressure on Japan to purchase straight off the shelf from the United States some next generation technologies that the Japanese feel that they would also like to have some capabilities to produce. So you have some pressure there on the defense technology side, but you also have the changing industry. Almost every country that we could imagine, at least in the democratic countries, right? France, UK, Australia, Japan, United States, we are all increasingly moving in aerospace in particular towards global supply chains. We're no longer nationally limited in our defense technologies either. So you've got a little bit of a push and pull. You've got the demand for Japanese technologies in certain sectors. So you saw very early on in this new initiative, Australia reaching out to Japan to say, can we talk to you about your submarine capabilities? And the Japanese put in a bid, but didn't win the bid early on as it began to consider partnerships beyond the United States. So I think this is a multifaceted question. It's not just about Japanese changing their policy. It's also about opportunities that others around the region, in fact, around the globe, our NATO allies as well, are looking to Japan to see if it's willing to collaborate. Japan has been, especially under Prime Minister Abe, but this is continuing under Prime Minister Suga, Japan has been pursuing a fairly networked security policy, and that's networked with not only the United States, but with other U.S. allies as well. So, for example, the Japan-Australia strategic relationship today is very, very sophisticated. In fact, the two defense ministers just signed an agreement that allows Japanese military forces to be on Australian soil, something unimaginable two decades ago. So you're seeing that also networked security in the region, and it you know extends to Australia, to India, alongside the United States, and now increasingly separate from the United States, Japan is building partnerships across the region. Speaking of Japan in terms of this more kind of regional role, there was news recently about an official encouraging Biden to think of Taiwan as a, almost a red line. Uh, I mean, what is your reaction to this kind of language? <laughs> You know, I think it's interesting to have the word red line thrown around in ways that are this day and age are kind of hard to understand. So that official actually wasn't a diplomat. He wasn't from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. He was the state vice minister for defense, which is a a parliamentarian so uh, that is put into the bureaucracy in an early part of their career. Fairly young uh, LDP politician with a fairly acute interest in defense issues. And he serves under Japanese defense minister Kishi Noburo. Yeah, he made a big splash. And I think he probably made a bigger splash than he had intended. But here's the question for the United States and Japan about Taiwan. China has increasingly stepped up its military patrols in and around Taiwan. It puts a lot of military pressure on the Taiwanese Air Force and Maritime Forces to respond to incursions in what's called the air defense zone around Taiwan. Not its territorial airspace, so it's important to make that distinction. But it is clear that Beijing is stepping up 
the military pressure in and around Taiwan. And that's something of great concern for the United States. It's something of great concern, obviously, to the Biden administration. And it will be, I think, at the top of the list of issues to be discussed as we think about how the alliance is going to adapt and move forward. Any kind of use of force against Taiwan would, have, of course, involve the United States, but it would also, due to the proximity right, of Japan, would have immense consequences for Japanese security. So this is an area, even though that red line comment may not have been, the, in my view, the right way to approach the subject, I, I don't have any doubt that, that Taiwan could be on the top of the, the conversation with the new Biden administration and the super cabinet. And speaking of the Biden administration, I, I believe they actually invited the Taiwanese representative to the inauguration. They did. They did. I don't think you're going to find much difference between Republicans or Democrats in the United States, you know, much partisan difference over this question of Taiwan's right to have a government that it chooses or to find that the Chinese military pressure on Taiwan is something that the United States takes lightly. So I think it's a very very difficult issue, of course, because Beijing has defined Taiwan as a core interest since we normalized relations back in the 1970s. So they have consistently indicated that that's an issue in which they might be willing to use force. So we have to watch this behavior develop quite carefully and hopefully find a pathway to not test that assumption about whether or not the United States would be in a position to help Taiwan defend itself. And you mentioned this transition from former Prime Minister Abe to current Prime Minister Suga Yoshihide. Of course, in the U.S., we also just recently had a transition administrations as well. And in fact, after the inauguration, Japanese Prime Minister Suga issued a statement on Twitter saying he looks forward to working together with President Biden uh, to, quote, realize a free and open Indo-Pacific, gesturing towards the quadrilateral security dialogue with Australia and India. Can you decipher what Suga was suggesting by mentioning this and engage what we might be able to expect from a Biden administration as far as the military alliance with Japan is concerned? So I think the Indo-Pacific vision that Japan has put forward and that, that dates back again to the Abe cabinet, but really has its roots in earlier cabinets in Japan. So this is a policy development policy initiative that has been decades in the making uh, among Japanese diplomats and strategic thinkers, but it really came to fruition under Prime Minister Abe. The Trump administration also bought into that language of the Indo-Pacific and of course sought to use some of those ideas, but also think about American Indo-Pacific ties as well. So I think you've got, with the incoming Biden administration now, you've got the recognition that the Indo-Pacific framing is a very positive one. You've got policymakers now going into, or at least nominated for positions going into the Biden administration that have deep policy experience themselves with relations with India and Australia and Japan and that, you know, what I was calling the network security structure among uh, partners and allies in the region. So, you know, we're going to have a new coordinator for Indo-Pacific in the National Security Council. So that's, you know, it's being internalized in our government as well as in the Japanese government. So I think there's a coincidence here of interest and recognition that the region requires much more integrated consultation and coordination if we are going to deal with the increasingly complex challenge that's China. It's not all military, though, and I just want to caution you that this is not just about military coordination and cooperation. It's going to be about trade. It's going to be about maritime security norms and practices. It's going to have a multidimensional approach to it. 
And in previous transitions, it seemed like the Japanese prime minister was always, you know, one of the first contacts, maybe one of the first official state visits to the U.S. and vice versa. And of course, you know, we've seen much coverage of, you know, this personal relationship between Abe and Trump, you know, talking about this close relationship and friendship. And perhaps there was maybe a bit too much made about that. I read in the news that it said it might even take a few days for Suga to actually place a call to Biden. Is this delay in Suga and Biden making contact? Is this representative of some kind of maybe trying to feel each other out a little bit in the new administrations? No. uh, In fact, there's no delay. Suga and Biden have already spoken. Mm -hmm. So I think what you're looking for has, in fact, already taken place during the transition. After the election was announced, uh, the results of the election w- were announced and uh, President-elect Biden was announced as president-elect. The next day, Prime Minister Suga sent his congratulations. And then within a week or so, then President-elect Biden had reached out to U.S. allies in, in the Asia-Pacific and so spoke with Prime Minister Suga, spoke with the uh, Prime Minister of Australia and others as well, President Moon in South Korea. So those initial, con- you know, we, we look at those as an incoming president has those conversations once they become president. That already took place with President-elect Biden when the election results were clear and confirmed. So I think what you have here is a question of when Prime Minister Suga might be able to come to Washington. And I think what we, we have to recognize here is we are in the midst of a pandemic And so the normal way of heads of state coming to visit a new president and and get to know a new administration, those things may not happen in the same pattern as they've happened in the past because of the limitations on travel. One thing to know is Jake Sullivan, who is due to go in as the national security advisor, has already spoken to Prime Minister Suga's national security advisor as well. So you're already seeing a highest level of government conversation in the alliance. And uh, you know Jake Sullivan confirmed, for example, that the United States would apply Article 5 protections to the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea, which is, of course, an issue the Japanese government feels very, very strongly about. So you see this kind of early setting the tone for the close coordination of the relationship is happening very, very quickly. You know, there is a danger that we see everything that Japan does as being breaking the boundaries of militarism. I wrote my book, Japan Rearmed, to help educate people on the, the kinds of changes that have already happened in Japanese military planning. None of these should be seen as an effort to move away from the alliance. But I do think in the, in the world out in the Indo-Pacific that Japan lives in, that the technological pressure on the Japanese defense industry is going to only grow. And I think there are other countries in the region that feel a similar pressure, given China's massive increased investment in their technology. So there are a lot more partners out there that would like to work with Japan, and it goes beyond the Indo-Pacific to include our NATO allies as well. That's not a bad thing for the United States. I think it's something the United States has wanted to see Japan do for some time. But it is a new area in which the United States and Japan are going to have to discuss their interests. And I think that's that's a healthy conversation for our two countries to have. I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University. And this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.